I'm Todd McKay. This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast. We're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, more accountable government. And today we've got something special because we're chatting with Danielle Smith. Now, many of you know who she is, obviously, MLA in Alberta. Until recently, had a Alberta-wide talk radio show. Everybody knew her opinion on everything because she weighed in on all of it. But until recently, because she walked away from that uh, that radio show. And of course, for the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast, accountability is a huge part of what we do. And media is a huge part of accountability. And so we thought, man, if we're going to talk about this stuff, the person we need to talk to <laughs> is Danielle Smith. So Danielle, thank you for joining us. And I got to say, I feel like I, I'm talking to a dairy farmer who recently you know, left the farm and doesn't have to get up early and go to the barn every day. That's got to be what it's kind of like uh, leaving talk radio. How, what's your life like right now? It's got to be a little bit of a strange transition for you. Well, it's it's busier in some ways. And when you get used to waking up, it's funny over the last year, because I've been broadcasting from home, I got to sleep in. I was able to sleep in till six o'clock most days. Whereas before when I had to drive into the station, I had to be up at 4.30. So I find I'm, I'm waking up in between about five and six o'clock. And so it gives me lots of of opportunity to, to work on projects. I find now I've kind of reset my clock. I'm far more productive in the in the mornings and by early afternoon, I'm ready for a nap. But I've been doing a, a lot of independent podcasts. There's just tons of alternative media out there that is doing some great work. I've been co-hosting or guest hosting on Western Standard online because there's a bunch of unfinished business I had from COVID coverage that I wasn't allowed to do when I was in mainstream media. And I, I have a, a number of other little projects and speaking engagements. So in some ways, yesterday, I think I had an event in the morning at 10. And then I did seven interviews because I'm collaborating with um, Peter McCaffrey on a municipal project interviewing municipal candidates. So did seven interviews there and then did a uh, two hour podcast with three deplatform doctors for Western Standard Radio. So I, I, I'm doing a, a lot more and a lot more of uh, things that are close to my heart. So that's, that's the nice part is that uh, there's never a dull moment. And in some ways I'm a lot busier. Sleeping in till 6 a.m. I'm, I'm not sure the term <laughs> sleeping in, it means what you think it means. But let's talk a little bit about, I know you've written about it in the National Post and other places. You walked away from a hugely successful show. Not a lot of people do that. Talk a little bit about the decision to to leave the airwaves and, and move into more alternative media and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's a strange, I, I guess I always enter media at the wrong time because I entered into media the first time in uh, at the Calgary Herald back in 1999. I'd gotten fired, incidentally, from the Calgary Board of Education. This is sort of a pattern for me. Someone's trying to tell me, stay the heck out of politics and go into media because I got hired by the, the Calgary Herald after getting fired as a trustee. And it, at that time, that was when blogs were becoming all the rage and everybody who had an opinion was setting up their own website and, and or, or blog site and, and blogging. And so the um, the avenue to pursue a career in editorial writing and column writing became narrower and narrower. The, the department kept getting smaller and smaller. So now that um, I got fired from a, my political job at the provincial level and got hired at radio, uh, I again, I think entered at exactly the wrong time because it was really when all of the online alternative media were just getting started. I think literally rebel media 
started up within months of me also, or I think they were, they were maybe six months ahead of me in, in going into mainstream. And it, it, that's the interesting thing is I think Ezra Levant for certainly for conservative media pioneered a brand new business model that others are now beginning to emulate. You look at True North, you look at Western Standard Online, there's probably a few others that I'm missing that are, are kind of full service reporting agencies. There's obviously some on the left as well, Canada Lands being an example. So all of that world really uh, sprouted up in the last five years. And I began finding that more and more I was interested in, in watching some of these long form interviews that are being done by thought leaders like Dave Rubin in the US, as well as Jordan Peterson, who he's collaborated with on a number of things. I like some of Joe Rogan. I know I shouldn't diss a guy who makes $110 million or whatever the heck Spotify is paying him, but I prefer it when he, when he interviews thought leaders like Douglas Murray than when he interviews comedians making fart jokes and swearing. So, but he also, I think, has pioneered a model that no one ever thought would work. How do you have a three hour long form interview with the same person and have people maintain their interest? So it's been really fascinating to watch that happen on the outside at the same time as um, mainstream media, I think, has become more and more timid. So you're seeing that a lot of the most interesting conversations aren't taking place, sadly, in the mainstream media anymore. They're taking place in, in forums like this. And so that's going to the mainstream media is going to have to respond to that. And I don't know how they're going to. I have some thoughts on how they should, but uh, heck, no one listens to me. So here I am um, finding that I'm getting far more um, far more people interested in what I have to say in, in this kind of format uh, through alternative websites than, than in the mainstream. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And when we talk about, but we got to talk about the accountability side of it. And I think actually you have a really interesting perspective because you've been an elected official, mm -hmm. but you've also been in the media. You've been on both sides of it. How important is that interaction between the media and politicians and how do you see that changing as the media landscape gets so fragmented? How do we hold politicians accountable? You know, Paul, uh, the media does generally a really good job of holding government to account on so many issues, and they've utterly failed on holding them to account on COVID, which may be the biggest, the biggest issue of our time, not only from health perspective, spending perspective, debt perspective, lockdown perspective. It's society-wide. And this is the time, I think, that the mainstream media should have been asking the tough questions and making sure that we had a broad public debate from a variety of perspectives so that we knew our politicians were making the right decisions. But something really weird happened. It's almost like, and maybe it's because the mainstream media thought that the lockdowns really would only be 15 days, as we were told. We just needed the 15-day lockdown to prevent our overflow of hospital and ICU capacity. And here we are a year later, and they're still talking about extending mask mandates and some of these lockdown measures into next year and beyond. So I think that at some point, the media is going to have to realize that the role that they typically play in an emergency has caused them to stifle debate. And, and that is not the role of the fourth estate. So here, here's where I think the problem came in because five years in radio um, was perfect for me. I felt like I had 
uh, a lot of latitude to cover issues from a lot of angles. But in the last year, it's, it's almost like, and I've gone through a few um, public emergencies before, because in Alberta, we had the Slave Lake fire and followed by flooding in Southern Alberta, including my own hometown. So I've seen how an emergency operations center operates. Uh, we also, uh, I was on radio for the Fort McMurray fires as well, and the daily update. So, so I think what happens is that mainstream media has a hybrid role. And it could be that uh, broadcast media, it's even more important that they have this hybrid role. Because when an emergency hits, you need the information, you need to cover the press conferences, you, you need to ask the questions, you need to be there, you need to be getting the government message out. Because if you don't, in a state of emergency, you can end up with, pe with people dying, you can end up pe with people returning to an area where, when it's not safe. So I understand the media mindset when it comes to a, a public emergency has been declared, but we've never had a year long public emergency. And so the, the media itself should be saying, is this legitimate that the government is asking us to essentially parrot their views without offering any commentary or counter to it for an entire year? My answer is no. In, the, in March, April, I totally agreed. We didn't know enough about the virus. There's some early uh, indications coming out that it was, especially when you look at even Wuhan and then also Italy, there were very early indications. The, the folks most hard hit were those who were over the age of 75 with multiple pre-existing conditions and often living in congregate care settings, which should have been the path. That should have been when the media started doing coverage of how are you going to protect this vulnerable group? And instead, when government, governments decided to go the lo complete lockdown route, it's almost as if the media collectively decided that they had to walk in lockstep with everything a chief medical officer said. The, and I don't know if it becomes from the Broadcast Standard Council and the fact that that's how they behaved in previous emergencies, or if it's the emergence of big tech, because um, Jack Dorsey and Sundar Pichai from Google slash YouTube and Mark Zuckerberg all took the position that they would deem anything that was contrary to what uh, the CDC boss, Anthony Fauci said, they, they, they determined anything that was said that was contrary to him would be deemed misinformation. And so it would be either warning video or fact check or completely deplatformed or accounts frozen. And so this is the weird interaction now between big tech social media companies and mainstream media is that when big tech decides to censor something and takes a video down, it becomes verboten to talk to or about uh, or with any of the individuals involved in the mainstream media. And that shouldn't be the case. Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai are not journalists. They don't have journalistic training. They should not be dictating to the mainstream media, the fourth estate that is charged with the task of holding government to account. They should not be dictating to us what we have to say and the and the topics we choose and the guests we put on and yet they are and so that's kind of where my fundamental breaking point came is that i'm i don't work for those three guys and if my if my if the mainstream media is going to act as if they do and allow that kind of censorship then i need to be in a different environment interesting i was just reading comments in the new york times very similar uh, somebody saying they were uncomfortable with Twitter and others mm -hmm. censoring points of view, including President Trump's at the time. But the person saying it was Bernie Sanders. Hmm. We're seeing people on all sides uh, raising concerns about this. One of the things that strikes me, though, especially when you're looking at the media environment overall, is that so much information is available. If you stifle conversation one way, 
people will look for other points of view in other places. So for myself, one example that came up in my mind is when uh, Ottawa's gun ban and uh, so-called buyback policy came out. I saw the media headlines, but I didn't read the media stories because I didn't mm -hmm. trust reporters to really understand what they're talking about. I immediately read the order and council itself because mm -hmm. it's readily available to me, then phoned a guy I knew who was an expert in it, asked him, hey man, what does this actually mean? I basically went around the mainstream media entirely. When you stifle parts of the conversation, what is the impact for the, the consumer, the citizen? What's the right term? What are we asking people to do when we're not bringing those voices forward? Well, there's, there's two impacts. And it was interesting that you started by quoting Bernie Sanders. And he's absolutely right. I mean, part of what I began to see as a perilous work environment was when it was progressives and leftists that were getting canceled because of some kind of Twitter storm that was created. So the first one I noticed was James Bennett from the New York Times editorial writer. He, he published a column from Senator Tom Cotton concerned about three months worth of uh, Antifa uh, burning down buildings and causing damage after mostly peaceful BLM um, uh, protests. And so the, he, he said, let's bring in the military to stop this. And it caused such a furor that James Bennett needed to be needed to uh, needed to put his resignation in. And I don't think James Bennett is some kind of arch conservative. Look at Jessica Mulroney and what happened to her getting deplatformed. She's got one of the most famous black friends in the world. And she was de she was deplatformed because of um, white privilege and, uh, and implications that she was somehow intolerant or racist. Um, there's uh, Barry Weiss, who's a prominent uh, pro-Israel uh, writer, uh, but also leftist from New York Times who felt it was a hostile environment. Uh, Glenn Greenwald as well. He's the person who interviewed Edward Snowden and he is a left-wing activist. He got booted out of his own alt-left paper when he started asking questions about some irregularities that took place in the US election. So when you start seeing that uh, the left is eating its own and you're a conservative, you think, oh boy, I don't know that I can, uh, I can navigate through this environment. And so uh, when my colleague Ryan Jesperson also a lefty, got fired. I thought this is, it's only a matter of time before I do. And, it, and you can't, you have to be proactive and leave because if you leave under a cloud of what Twitter is trying to depict you as, it can be devastating to your reputation. And so that, that's, one, that's one side of it. This, the consumer side of it though, is you're, you're quite right, is you can get information everywhere. In fact, it, when, I was, when I was on the air, I would see an, um, a, a posting that had been done by a doctor and say, and I do one of two things. <laughs> I, I, I would either try to get it up before it was deplatformed or after it was deplatformed, I'd just go and watch it on BitChute. So you already see that there's even alternative online forums that have started up as a counter to YouTube. So there's virtually nothing that's unavailable, but what's missing is the mainstream media comment commentators to put it into context. You, you don't solve a problem of polarization by pretending that alternative views don't exist. 
and by pushing them out onto the fringes. The way that you bring context to it is you bring it into the mainstream and then you say, okay, this is what these doctors say or this person says. Let's have a discussion about where they're right, where they're wrong. If they're nuts, then we need to dismantle this. If this is false information, then we need to educate the public that it's false. And I don't think the media is doing that particularly well either because they're, uh, they're ignoring so much of the conversation that is going on in the alternative, trying to mischaracterize it. The, the, the classic way anything gets mischaracterized is to call it racist or sexist or uh, against LGBTQ plus community or somehow intolerant. And, and as a result, people, I think the, the, what they're attempting to do is to drive people away from the material so that, oh gosh, I'm not any of those things. I don't want to look at it. But what actually happens is that more people get drawn to the forbidden fruit. And so you see more people seeing those kinds of videos and then they click through and you get into weirder and weirder sites. And then you get further and further from the mainstream. And I, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think it's healthy for those who are pursuing um, information that way. I don't think it is healthy for our public dialogue and it's not healthy for the media. It's not helpful for trying to end polarization, but that I think is going to get worse before it gets better. Um, I'm glad to see, and I think what will happen if you want the truth, I think what's going to happen is that um, news organizations that started off being sort of left or right they will probably um, find some success in becoming more centrist, that those who thought they were going to be the conservative voice or the progressive voice are just going to try to be the voice of reason. And so there, I think that there will be alternative platforms that will, will develop. And I don't know if the mainstream media, if any of the outlets that we have today, I don't know if any of them are gonna be here 10 years from now. Well, that actually takes me right into my next question. It kind of gets into the business of it. Mm. I think every day we see headlines that journalism is dying, the media, the business model doesn't work, it's going to collapse. And of course, the solution we see pushed to the front is government should give them money. Let's have a mm. bailout. Uh, you know, we've seen Ottawa uh, offer big bailouts to particularly newspapers and so on. But it strikes me that one of the central problems is credibility. Mm -hmm. If people don't think you're credible, it doesn't really matter what else you're going to do. What's your sense of the impact of government money on journalism and, and what that does to uh, its credibility? I, I don't I don't think you can have a I mean look I'll say CBC is I know I know CBC is the news organization everyone loves to hate but I must tell you they are the ones who are doing the broadest range of coverage from the most perspectives that I have seen anytime I look for an article on an issue that is erupt that has come up almost always a CBC story comes to the front. And when I read it through, it's a pretty darn good backgrounder. So I'm not going to, to jump all over the CBC as some might. Their commentary though, is where you have to make sure that you've got balance and they do a reasonably good job. I mean, I've seen left-wing and right-wing voices on there. So maybe it's because they feel they've got something to prove that, uh, that they're populating their stories with more perspectives than what I'm seeing right now in the corporate private uh, uh, media. But the, the, the danger in the long run is you can't, you can't just have um, a government news agency because then you don't, then anytime you end up with a monopoly is when you're, you're going to end up with trouble. And when you have a government monopoly of an agency that's supposed to be a watchdog to government, that does not work. So 
the business model though does need to change. I, I think, unfortunately, we have all gotten so used to information being free that paying to get a perspective is outside of the realm of most day-to-day news consumers. And it's expensive too, as well, right? If you, if you wanted to get a very broad perspective on issues, you might have to subscribe to 20 different sites. And that's um, out of the reach for a lot of people. They're not going to pay $10 a month to 20 different sites to get their news. So what do you do instead? I think that there's probably going to be an emergence of, and I, I go back to Rebel Media because I've been watching their emergence as a business model for some time. And part of what it seems to me that they do is they build up a subscriber list on the basis of providing free content. And then if they find an issue they wanna advocate on, they do a fundraising campaign to raise dollars for that particular issue. And so that becomes advocacy funded journalism. So that's one model. Another model, I'm experimenting with this a little bit, is I've got a a weekly newsletter and I just um, give people my perspective on issues, a whole variety and lots of links. I try to make it have as much value as possible. And I just say that the only thing that I ask for is for them to just tell me who they are. Just give me your, your real name and a real email address and I'll send it out to you and you can circulate it. And then at the end, I just say, hey, look, independent journalism needs to be funded. If you like what I'm doing, just support me um, on and by donating. So this patron model might be another model that works where you find those who value free speech and value different perspectives. And then they're prepared to, to give you money with no strings attached so that you can continue doing what you do. And I think that would be may, perhaps a healthier form of journalism. Maybe a third model that would emerge is perhaps media needs to get charitable status as an educational uh, type of institute. And if you have charitable status, then you can be soliciting funds from foundations and others with a charitable tax receipt. And maybe that's the way it gets funded. I just, I don't think we have a healthy situation right now where there's, there's two big, big problems with the, the media model that we've got right now. One is that as COVID has decimated the small business community, you don't have the local businesses anymore who are advertising. Why, if you're a small retail shop or a small restaurant, why would you advertise on radio or a newspaper when you can only operate at 15% capacity or at 50% capacity in the case of restaurants? You, you don't. So then who is the one, who are the ones who are advertising? All the big guys. And guess what happens when all the big guys are the only ones who are advertising? They've got a disproportionate influence on the coverage. And if they get spooked because some Twitter shitstorm has happened, if they get spooked, then they put pressure on the company to put pressure on that news voice, that that opinion voice. And so do we really want a media that's controlled by the big banks or by the the, the national auto uh, companies? I don't think we do. Um, So that's, that's one problem with the model that I see. Um, and, and the other model, of course, as you've always, as you've already mentioned, having, having government have undue control and, and influence over the, the coverage, we, we can't have that model uh, persist either. All right. I feel like we've been kind of Debbie Downers here. We've been talking about a lot of problems, but I yep. want to, I want to 
talk a little bit about where you, you see hope as well. I find it interesting, the We Charity scandal to a large extent was driven by Canada Land, Completely. as you note, uh, a, a sort of a left-leaning uh, uh, podcast and, and news outlet. We're also seeing great work from uh, True North, from the Western Standard, from Blacklock's reporter must, uh, <laughs> must file more access to information <laughs> requests than anybody. They blow my mind with how much digging they do. Where do you see the hope? It can't all be bad. Like if you're looking down the road, what is, where do you see uh, glimmers of hope uh, in terms of uh, journalism and, and uh, holding politicians accountable? I'll tell you what surprises me because I've been watching the development of online for some time. I thought that online would really just be the avenue for commentary. And I've been very surprised by groups like Canada Land and Blacklocks who have done so much independent journalism. As I put it um, before, I mean, people like to, to dump on rebel media because they do an advocacy form of journalism. But would we have known that we were training Chinese military and having them sit in on our exercises if they hadn't done the legwork on that? Would we have known about the problems with, with We Charity if Canada Land hadn't been watchdogging them for the past year? We wouldn't. And so that is, that is so there's an interesting, um, there's a potential, I think, for the mainstream media to become relevant again, but they have to stop treating the alt media like they're pariahs. I, I saw Jesse Brown, anytime he would do a story, it was interesting, he'd do a story and then others would say, news reports broke that and they wouldn't give him credit. And so he would go back and he'd say, oh really? It just materialized out of thin air, did it? No, this was a Canada land story and you should make reference to that. So he did a good job of really firmly implanting that it was his legwork that led to the, the outcome. But look, once he broke the story, there's so there's such small shops that they can't take it the rest of the way. The media, once they realized it was a story, did great work on covering that, finding multiple angles, having a bunch of people to talk to. You know, in a, and so that is where I see the, the future being is that if you can have a bunch of these scrappy little outlets left and right doing access to information requests, digging up interesting stories, and the mainstream media have a, having enough respect for the, fact, for the fact that they've done the work that they'll give them the credit, then that assists the alt media in their fundraising efforts saying, hey, look, we broke this story and it went everywhere. You gotta keep funding us so that we can do more of it. And it also gives the mainstream media uh, more credibility because it shows that they're not suppressing information um, and they're not stealing it either. Like you can't let somebody else take your work and then pretend it was yours. You, you've got, this is plagiarism is a, a serious business and, and it's a serious problem. And we have serious penalties for it in journalism. And it always astonished me that that uh, media would report on someone else's work without wanting to give credit. I always try to give credit where it's due. So I think that that is the opportunity is I've been really delighted to see that there's just these citizen investigative journalists who, if they've got just a something that they've they've got, a, a, what is the, the phrase, a, a dog with a bone and mm -hmm. they don't want to let it go, they, they in some ways are going to be able to do a lot of the work of journalism that needs to be done. But the mainstream media has to, has to do, I think, a better job of making sure all perspectives are covered and to not just assume that because something broke in the alt media, it's automatically fringy. There's, there's a lot of really great mainstream work being done in, in the alternative media. I feel like we could talk about this stuff probably forever, but you've got a whole bunch of stuff going on. I did want to sort of finish up on a little bit of a lighter note. And I actually have, well, it could be a funny story or it could be a confession. It kind of depends on how you take this one. But you had me on your show 
talking about equalization a number of years ago. And when you reached out, which was very kind of you, I had planned to go ice fishing that day. Oh no! So, well, here's the thing. I still went ice fishing because I was like, ah, ice fishing shack, it's nice and quiet. I can do online. And we were having a really good interview. You were asking me a very good question. I think I knew most of the answer. And then all of a sudden this huge pike shows up on the uh, underwater camera. And my mind went blank. I just about dropped the phone and grabbed my <laughs> fishy rock. You must have thought I had a stroke. I felt so unprofessional. It was absolutely ridiculous. So I wanted to apologize for that. First of all, take the opportunity I, for that. I always thought you were a fantastic interview, as so many of the advocates for Canadian Taxpayers Federation are. I don't know how it is that uh, you, that first, I guess, Troy Lanigan and then uh, Scott Hennig have done such a great job of recruiting. But I must tell you, you you're always so, so pro. I probably didn't notice. It probably was less of a pause than you expected. But did you catch the fish? That's no, the big No, the question. fish got away. The Darn fish it. got away. But then we had you a good time. You should be mad at me. Like, I should be apologizing to, to you. <laughs> that you didn't catch that fish we, we could have done a live breaking segment about <laughs> the fish tell me make me feel better though tell me one of your funny stories about something crazy that happened uh you know while you were live on radio oh gosh um what you know the, the the big problem when you're live on radio is and this is a maybe the part the part of it you just get used to it that um, what I when I started in radio, I got some great advice from a colleague, uh, Roger Kincaid. He said, if you want to know how to do talk radio right, you've got to listen to Rush Limbaugh, which surprised me because I always thought that Rush Limbaugh was far more right wing than me and hadn't given him a chance. But one of the things that Rush Limbaugh would do is he would just do three hours of straight talk and then get into um, his his uh, his his calls with his audience. And so. I think I'm able to say that I avoided a lot of uh, those kind of awkward moments because what that taught me is you always have to have 10 or 15 stories on standby in case a guest doesn't show up or in case something goes wonky technically that you just need to be able to fill the time. So I'm, I think there's nothing that can be thrown at me now. The only thing, now, now I'm talking it through, the only thing that was the most embarrassing was when they were doing a... Um, I, we were doing some kind of advertisement for, I think one of the, uh, one of the top, one of the radio stations that does music used to have a, a dinosaur as a mascot for one of their contests. And I had a Senator who was in my, uh, in my studio one day. And as we're talking to this quite aged Senator and everybody has this view of senators being a little bit like dinosaurs, all of a sudden the dinosaur comes back. Ah! and it roars in the in the window and I, I can't I think we ended up getting a picture of that and I always thought oh gosh that senator he saw that he's gonna be so mad at me he's gonna think that we were making fun of Again, him on the other side making fun of senators is a big hobby around here I, I feel like we're on we're on perfect side there hey listen I really appreciate you chatting with us where can people hear you now other than right here you're all over the place what's the best place uh, for people best to, thing to, to do is saying? to sign up for my newsletter i at daniellesmith.ca i have it right on my landing page my my i know my website needs to be revamped i haven't had time to do that i mean it's in process but that's the best place because then each sunday i send out a long form newsletter just letting people know what my appearances were and if they're posted links i give them links and then i let them know what's upcoming so i'm going to try to work on 
on something a little more permanent, but I haven't I haven't settled on where that's going to be yet. I, I, I think what I'd like to be able to do is at least a long form interview a week so that with with a thought leader and have a really in-depth conversation. As I mentioned, I've really been inspired by people like Dave Rubin. I've even joined his platform. He created a a, a platform that is a deplatforming proof because it's a combination of operates a bit like Twitter, um, but it, you can also put longer form uh, posts like Facebook and, and pictures on, but you also have a, a video function and they're about to roll out a new technology that, that allows for live streaming. So I've, I've found a new network that, uh, that I can operate on. And so that I'll, I'll probably be doing a lot more work on that, but I've only been outside of the mainstream for about a month now. I'm also doing a column at the Calgary Herald and Calgary and Edmonton Journal. So I still have a foot because I think it's really important to have a foot in both worlds that if, you, if you're going to marry mainstream and alt media, you, you've got to have credibility on both sides. So there's more to come, but it'll take a little while before I, I settle on that. But the best place to find out what comes next is by signing up to my newsletter, daniellesmith.ca. Well, I think if you, uh, even if you keep sleeping in till 6 a.m., I suspect you'll still have enough hours in the day to build this very quickly. And we look forward to seeing how that goes. I Thank you that. again so much for, for chatting with us today. You got it. Thanks, Todd.